Welcome to another home-cooked episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government, and with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, May 11th, the eve of a highly competitive special election in Southern California. Tomorrow will also include another House special in Wisconsin and a Democratic primary in Nebraska to take on a Republican incumbent for the state's swingiest seat. We'll focus on that first one in the Golden State with our guest today, Paul Mitchell, the Vice President of Political Data, Inc., who's been tracking the mail ballot returns and is an expert on California demographics, redistricting, and elections. And later in the show, we'll break down another new campaign ad that caught our attention. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down-Ballot Counts. Up first is Jero's Gem. Jero's Gem, my number of the week is 101. That's the number of women presently serving in the U.S. House of Representatives. Despite gains in recent years, that's still just 23.5% of the membership. The partisan breakdown of the 101 women is 88 Democrats and 13 Republicans. The number of women in the House was 102 at the beginning of this Congress when it included Katie Hill, a California Democrat who resigned last November amid a sex scandal. That number may again change soon. As we speak today, Monday, May the 11th, a special election in Hill's district is tomorrow, and one of the nominees is a Democratic woman, Assemblywoman Christy Smith, who's in a very tough race against Republican Mike Garcia. Democrats also have a woman as their nominee in another special election tomorrow in Wisconsin's 7th district, though Trisha Zunker, a school board president and law professor, is an underdog in that conservative district against Republican State Senator Tom Tiffany. We'll have more on the California election coming up on Down Ballot Counts, and we'll be analyzing the campaigns and progress of women candidates in our Bloomberg government election coverage. And that's your Jero's Gem of the Week. All right. After the break, we're going back to Cali. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now to discuss the special election in California's 25th district is Paul Mitchell, a Sacramento-based vice president of Political Data, Inc., and the owner of Redistricting Partners. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, so it felt like politics was kind of paused for a while. We did, a lot of primaries were getting pushed down the calendar. Um, but this special election in California has always been looming. And um, we've kind of been watching it from afar, obviously. And um, you're watching it much more closely. Um, so I know both parties are, are deeply invested in this. Um, and it's the, the races between Democratic State Assemblywoman Christy Smith uh, and Republican defense contractor Mike Garcia. Uh, just wanted to ask generally, where do we stand on ballot returns now, as of now, Monday morning? Yeah, so as of Monday morning, we have received about 28% turnout so far in the district, which um, right now ranks it. Even if the election stopped today, it would be the second highest turnout in a special election in California in more than a decade. That's the first thing that we see. And, and to put it into perspective, however, there's a Senate district, just, you know, another part of uh, Southern California that is at over 35 percent turnout right now. So, you know, we we are seeing this extraordinarily high level of turnout. Um, you're right that both parties are really focused on this race. And obviously this this race is probably getting an outsized national attention because it's the only thing happening. It's like the 
It's like the MMA in sports. Like, you know, I see a lot of coverage of the one sport that's actually functioning in America right now. Um, and in the same way, you're seeing a lot of attention here. I think folks are also looking at this kind of as an early barometer of what's potentially going to happen in November in two key ways. One is um, kind of where is the ideological bent of a district like this that is traditionally a swing seat that has been Republican, then Democrat, and now is facing a strong challenge by a Republican. And secondly, from the national perspective, this is the second biggest election since Wisconsin, in a sense of an area that has been pushed into an all vote by mail uh, scenario. And coming out of Wisconsin and this race, we're likely to see, for better or worse, analysis of what will be kind of the consequence of transitioning to an all-male election. So there's a lot of things here uh, that folks are looking at. And from my perspective, a lot of things here that are ripe to be overread. Um, you know, this is not, uh, I don't think, the best laboratory for testing either of those propositions, whether it's a good laboratory for determining uh, what is the partisan makeup going to November, how secure are these congressional districts that Democrats flipped in 2018. And I don't think it's a great measure of uh, what will be the impact of a conversion to vote by mail nationally. Yeah, I mean, uh, special elections are always or usually odd timed elections. Um, but these are kind of the oddest of times. Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering how much you, you were you were going to be reading into this for November. So yeah, you know, I've had a lot of people call and uh they're looking backwards to say like, okay, given historic voting patterns, what are you seeing here? And I say to them, well, you know, given uh, every election we've ever run in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> uh, <laughs> my, you know, with an N of zero, uh, I can confidently tell you this. Um, there's a lot of theories flying around as to what's happening, uh, but I think it's going to take a long time to unpack. Uh, Paul, could you tell us a little bit about the district's you know, political geography, its party registration, and recent election performance for those who may not know California's 25th uh, as well? So for most people who are looking at this nationally, they'd see, okay, this is a district that's largely in L.A. County. So they think of L.A. County and they think of, you know, everything from Hollywood to the beaches to, you know, kind of downtown. Uh, there's kind of a, a view of what L.A. County is. Um but L.A. County is, in this portion, this is really kind of like the exurbs of L.A. County. It's kind of a place where L.A. County kind of merges into the Central Valley. And so as such, uh, it's very different uh, demographically and politically than the rest of L.A. County. This isn't, uh, you know, really a district you'd want to compare to something, say, in Santa Monica or Inglewood or downtown L.A. or you know, these other kind of typical cities in uh, L.A. County that most people nationally perceive as kind of what L.A. is. Um, so, uh, you know, as it's got this portion of northern L.A. County and then a portion of Ventura County, uh, the city of Simi Valley is about 90 percent in this district. And uh, so it is a it's an interesting swing district. It is more moderate of a bent there are some interesting dynamics in terms of the types of people that and the workforce that is in this portion of the district. Um, and there's actually some theories going on around, you know, the kinds of voters that might be in essential services right now, 
that are maybe going to work and the types of people who are maybe in more the service sector um, or people who are currently unemployed in this district, it's going to be very different than maybe the rest of L.A. County. And according to your very handy vote tracking tool, uh, 45 percent of the return ballots are from registered Republicans, about 36 percent from Democrats, 20 percent from no party or third party voters. Yeah. What, what, what do you take away from that? And um, should, should Democrats be concerned or alarmed by those numbers? A typical pattern to begin with that the early voting in these primaries generally or in these elections, the early vote by mail is going to be more conservative. And we're seeing a district that does have a you know double digit Democratic registration advantage and then kind of a flip of that with a double digit a Republican turnout advantage happening in these early ballots. Um, a lot of people are out there saying, well, in the late vote, Democrats generally pick up and Democratic turnout is is later in the process. Uh, the challenge, though, is that one of the reasons why Democratic turnout is usually later in the process is that Democrats are a larger share of that election day vote, in-person voting, you know, and that kind of activity, which might be really curtailed in this environment. There are voting in-person locations, but they're limited, and um, Democrats might not be able to, you know, really count on a big pickup near the end. So that jumps out. The other thing that that is interesting is we did a little bit of looking at that percentage that's the independents. Now, if this district were, say, along the coast or in an urban area, you would probably see those independents skew very democratic. In this area, we looked at those independents and they're almost evenly split between independents who maybe used to be Democrats or have donated to Democrats or who live in households with only Democrats and independents who conversely are either previous Republicans or have donated to Republicans or live in households with only Republicans. So that independent break is probably more of a 50-50 than in other parts of the state where that independent break would be expected to be more like 60-40. Are, are we expecting to know the winner on election night, on Tuesday night? Um, I would guess that we should. I mean... Uh, again, the last time we had this kind of voting in a pandemic, um, (laughs) the large number of early votes suggests that the county will be able to put up an initial number that is probably reflective of the final, uh, final numbers. Uh, the, the way it works is that the counties have been receiving these ballots. They'll go in and signature verify those and get all those ballots ready for tabulation. And at some point, maybe, Maybe it was Saturday, maybe it's today. The county will kind of stop that process and go focus more on uh, getting those vote centers operating and, and, and making sure that, that they're staffing that portion of the election. On election night at 8 o'clock, just after 8 o'clock, the polls close. Traditionally, what we call the 801s are the returns that come in immediately. So you'll see a number go up that says 0% of precincts reporting and here's 120,000 votes. What that means is 120,000 votes have been tabulated from those early ballots that have been cast up until maybe Saturday. Um, from that 120,000, that might represent 70% or 60% or something like that of the final total. Through the night, they'll continue tabulating and probably end up finishing around midnight. Um, but by midnight or maybe early Wednesday morning, we'll probably have a number that's pretty representative of the total. Now, 
The counties will still receive ballots up until Friday, as long as they're postmarked by election day. So there will be a, um, you know, some significant percentage of ballots that come in really late. Um, they have to signature verify a bunch of ballots. There might be a process that could take two weeks or up to a month of like finalizing this election. Um, but, you know, let's say there's a double digit lead by one of the candidates on election night. I think most observers will start to look at that and say, OK, well, that might be something that's insurmountable with the kind of expected ballots out- outstanding. Have you heard how Democrats um, ballot harvesting operations have been affected by coronavirus? Are they able to do that still or, you know, to ensure I the think I'm legally ballot- required to call it ballot delivery. Oh, OK. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, ballot, ballot harvesting is kind of a, it's a very um, weighted term. I think it's it's catchy. So it, you know. The people who have been trying to talk some, uh, you know, common sense into this whole debate have been really hamstrung by the fact that everybody likes calling it ballot ballot harvesting. But um, so first off, this process of going out and collecting ballots in person, um, its its impact has probably been kind of overstated in political circles because it is kind of just such a draw, I think. Um, in California, once we put postage on all the ballots the impact of ballot harvesting went down because it wasn't like you could say to a voter or would say to a voter, you know, oh, save the postage, I'll take your ballot. The the structural ballot delivery or ballot harvesting that we've seen most in California has been the type where instead of people going to people's doors and saying, would you like to have me return your ballot? They've had like events, in-person events and said, bring your ballot to this event and you can turn it in there. In fact, the first instance of ballot harvesting we saw in California was in a special election for Congress with a Korean Republican candidate who was having voters bring their ballots to the Korean churches. Um, and so it's been a bipartisan thing to, on both sides, try to use this. I liken it more to when they used to do a lot of programs to drive people to the polls. And that still happens around the state. Driving people to the polls or doing the you know, picking up their ballot is kind of one and the same, uh, just different for the different types of voting. Um, And we've seen both sides in this uh, race, presumably. I know that we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen people talking about the Christy Smith campaign going and trying to get people to turn in their ballots. Um, We've also seen uh, emails from the Republican campaign, from the Garcia campaign, uh, asking people to to bring their ballots as a group to like an event, but of course this probably is all really nullified by the kind of lack of in person contact that's more of a regular, uh, you know, function of political campaigns. The lack of rallies, the lack of you know any kind of events, the lack of church services that people can come back to to return their ballots, and the lack of kind of in person door knocking activities. So. Um, I don't think it'll have a big impact in this race. And uh, this is a district, um, as you alluded to, Democrats have made gains recently. They lead in voter registration. Katie Hill won it comfortably in 2018. Hillary Clinton won it by almost seven points in 2016. And historically, at least, the president's party tends to struggle or at least underperform in special elections. I mean, I I guess uh, I'm wondering what you think are the most compelling reasons for this race being uh, close, or at least Republicans having an early advantage in ballots returned so far? 
Well, um, first off, regardless of the fact that we're seeing higher turnout for a special election kind of environment, this is definitely lower turnout than we would expect, like in the November election or a general election. Um, and so uh, when you have lower turnout in California, especially in districts like this, the turnout doesn't drop evenly from all groups. Um, the turnout essentially collapses on one side of the spectrum. And that side of the spectrum is the lower income, the renters, the more minority populations. Um, you could look at a segment of the electorate in this district that, let's say, is older, white, conservative homeowners, and they are going to be 79% turnout in a general election, and they're going to be 71% turnout in a special election or something like that. But then you look at a, a lower income renter minority um, you know, population, they might be 55, 60% turnout in a general election and might be 11% turnout in a special. So the collapse of turnout isn't something that's kind of a uniform thing across all socio-demographic and also political uh, stripes. It's something that really negatively affects um, kind of democratic voters. And I think as a result, uh, most people expected this to, to be a race that would be hard for uh, the democratic candidate in this special election. What's interesting about this uh, race is that you've got a primary, then this inner, this, this kind of in-between special election, and then they're going to have to run again in the general. And uh, you might see this kind of whiplash of a, pri a special election that could be much, much more favorable to the Republican, and then a presidential general election that would be much, much more favorable to a Democrat. Um, even in the same you know, bucket of voters, you'll see a lot different performance. And then this is obviously mixed up by the fact that you have this kind of external thing impacting with the virus and what kind of stay-at-home situation we're in now and where we're at with the virus now versus where we're going to be in November, which is a complete unknown. So, um, so yeah, the, the, the dynamics of this election uh, are pretty crazy. All right, we will have to leave it there. Paul, we, this was really great, and we'd love to have you back on uh, later this year to talk about redistricting, if possible. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, let's definitely talk about that again. You can follow Paul on Twitter, at Paul Mitchell, and replace the L's with ones. Um, thank you so much for everything. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Up next, we'll hear an ad from the Cornhusker State. If Kara Eastman can't beat Don Bacon with millions of dollars in a Democratic wave, how can she do it in 2020? That's why Nebraska Democrats, including Bob Carey, Ben Nelson, and Kim Roback, support Ann Ashford for Congress. Ann can win. Kara can't. Ann Ashford, a local community leader who spent much of her career in health care with a plan to ensure every Nebraskan. Ann Ashford, the one Democrat who can beat Don Bacon. I'm Ann Ashford, and I approve this message. That was an ad from Ann Ashford, one of a few Democrats running in Tuesday's primary in Nebraska's 2nd District to take on second-term Republican Congressman Don Bacon. That last line felt to me like an homage to the argument for Joe Biden over Bernie Sanders. What were your takeaways, Greg? Yeah, Kyle, this spot calls attention to some arguments within the Democratic Party that were present here in 2018 when Kara Eastman, a more progressive Democrat, uh, won the Democratic primary over Ann Ashford's husband, Brad Ashford. 
a former moderate blue dog congressman who sought a comeback after losing his seat to Don Bacon, the Republican congressman, in 2016. Um, the Ashford wing of the party, Kyle, I think, asserts that a more moderate Democratic candidate with partisan crossover appeal um, is required to win what is a competitive, mildly Republican-leaning district, while Eastman supporters feel she can build on that 49% she won against Don Bacon in 2018 and rally progressive and liberal voters in the way that the Ashfords cannot. In fact, Eastman tweeted yesterday that uh, anyone can say they can win. We have the facts to prove we are the most competitive campaign. Um, so we focus a lot on here on competitive Democratic-held House seats in the 2020 election. But Nebraska's 2nd District is among some Republican-held districts to watch. And finally, Kyle, it's unique in that the presidential campaigns may play here in November because this electoral vote may also be up for grabs. That's right. And also, uh, I should mention that the incumbent's last name is Bacon. Um, and he used his last name uh, in some pretty clever ads when he first ran for Congress. I don't know if you remember, in uh, 2016, I think... Tagline was something like everyone loves bacon, something like that. So uh, definitely some memorable ads. And uh, I did look it up, Greg. He's the eighth member of Congress ever to have the last name Bacon. Gotta love it. All right. Now, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with a political trivia question. As always, let's review last week's question. I went pretty deep into the Giroux archives on this one. In the wake of Maryland Democrat Kwesi Mfume rejoining the House of Representatives 24 years after he originally served there, I wanted to know the longest such gap in a House member's non-consecutive service. When we posted this question on the Bloomberg government Twitter feed uh, last week, I gave the choices of 32, 34, 36, and 38 years. Uh, Kyle, what do you think about that? Do you have an answer for me? Uh, I, I'm going with 32. Uh, one certain former Minnesota congressman, uh, I believe, had 32 years. That's right, Rick Nolan. You're thinking of him, 32 years. And that is one of the longest such gaps in history, but not the longest. That record is 34 years by Maryland Democrat Philip Francis Thomas. He served in the House from 1839 to 1841 and left. He became governor of Maryland, comptroller of the U.S. Treasury, and President James Buchanan's Treasury Secretary, among other positions. Then he came back to the House in 1875, 34 years after originally leaving, and served one more term. So congratulations to those who knew the answer, including my friend Vince, who tweeted at me the correct answer. Now, Rick Nolan, at 32 years, was a popular answer. He was the uh, Minnesota Democrat who served from 1975 to 1981 as a Watergate baby, and then again from 2013 to 2019. Actually had a nice long conversation with Nolan last week, mostly about Mfume and what it was like to come back after a long absence. And he mentioned that he was told his 32-year gap was the longest in history, but in fact, Philip Francis Thomas has him beat by two years. And now for this week's question. With a competitive California special election front and center in the election world, I shall ask this. When was the last year a California Republican won a general election for a U.S. House seat held by a Democrat? In other words, when was the last time a California Republican flipped a Democratic-held congressional seat in that state? You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. 
We'll also tweak the question and four possible answers from the BGov feed. We'll reveal the answer and ask a new question on next week's episode of Down Ballot Counts. That's it for us today. Before we go, Greg, what are you watching this week? Well, Kyle, we love election days. We've got that big one tomorrow, as we've talked about on this program. California's 25th district and Wisconsin's 7th district have special elections. We talked about that Democratic primary in Omaha and Nebraska's 2nd district in the ad spotlight segment. And also, we want to watch to see the House maybe return late this week to begin work on the next tranche of coronavirus relief. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. The producer for Down Ballot Counts is David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.begov.com. We'll talk to you next week. Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu, and I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.